history with the podcast guy, Matt King. Hey everybody, thank you for listening to our podcast. Unfortunately, for some, our topics that we talk about may be offensive to some people. The topics that we discuss could also be triggers, and we want you to be aware of that. If you are in need of help, please talk to a professional, a family member, or a friend. We are not medical professionals, and we don't claim to be. We are just two guys with a microphone and a platform. Please listen with discretion. Welcome to This Time in History, guys. I'm Matthew, and I am so pleased to be joined today by Christopher S. Rudder, the host, creator of the podcast, telling you how it is. Welcome to the show, Christopher. I appreciate it, brother. How are you doing today? I am doing so well, you know, as well as can be expected for a Monday. <laughs> you know, if I was any uh, fighter, I'd be frog turd, brother. So, you know, it is what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, you know, just to welcome everybody in here. Uh, uh, we are doing a uh, borderline kind of a simulcast with this. We're both recording at the same time, Matt and I, with this place in history, and Chris Frustrator is telling you how it is. Um, but, uh, you know, this week we've got a lot of different things that we're going to talk about. I'm very interested to see what Matt's interview style is going to be like. He's going to come at me with some things and try to get me to peel back some layers of the onion that most people don't normally get to hear on my show, wherever it comes to personal revelations or anything like that. Most people who have followed me from day one, they know a lot of different things, wherever it comes about my personal life and things like that. So we're going to see how that goes, and I'm going to bounce some stuff off of Matt and see how things kind of coincide between the two borders here that we share with him being in Canada, uh, in the Ontario uh, province, and me being on the American side of it, and dealing with, you know, the usual things that everybody's used to hearing me talk about, dealing with politics, dealing with the conspiracy, dealing with the WHO, dealing with the New World Order, dealing with the WEF, dealing with all of these different things, and the really cool thing about it is, is that Matt is getting ready to start doing a lot of different um uh, interviews with a lot of different politicians who are up for the Canadian version of midterms, which right now we're in that uh, process, but it's the um, choosing stage. Our uh, uh, midterms come up in November, so we're both kind of in a similar political kind of uh, stratosphere going on right now here in the next six months. A lot of things can be chosen between American and, and uh, Canadian uh, uh, politics here, so it's going to be very interesting to hear that side of things, too. But the first part of the show here, this is all Matt's uh, this time in history. Matt, I turn it all over to you, brother. What do you want to talk about? I just want to... Uh, I, I'm such in awe. Like I always do a little bit of preparation for my shows, I do a little bit, sometimes I don't, because sometimes I want to be surprised, I want to react as though I think my audience would react and ask the questions that I think that they would ask, but I did take a look, you are, your stuff, it blows me away, so I I mean, I I gotta hear the story of, of how this all came to be, but why don't we start with uh, where you were born, where you grew up, and, and, and how... Like, how that led you into, I guess, wanting to be a podcast. Maybe no one wants to be a podcaster. Maybe it just happened. But whatever your story is, I'd love to hear it. Okay, so um, maybe we'll just start with uh, with this and baby steps. Uh, where, where I was born and raised. Sounds good. Born and raised in southern Indiana. Um, did most of my 
the beginning uh, and everything, uh, my life was very chaotic. I was raised around bikers and uh, strippers and hippies left over from the 60s and early 70s uh, free love culture, okay? I'm 51, and um, so there's a long journey in, in front of us with all of this, but at, at, at the same time, whenever you're talking about that kind of upbringing here in Southern Indiana, that most of my roots didn't actually start here until much later in age. I, I did a lot of um, uh, farming and tobacco farming in Kentucky and, and Texas. I also traveled the road with my old man. He played with the Tower of Power Horns section with Fleetwood Mac in Chicago and, and uh, Molly Hatchet and many other different groups. Uh, I traveled, I didn't even go to school until I was seven years old. Wow. So I was born very much a free spirit. I was born very much um, a very much very much a product of the 70s, okay? We'll start with that. <laughs> <laughs> that's, uh, that, that's, 70s is an interesting, interesting time. You know, I, I listened to my, my brother-in-law. He, he, he wasn't alive in this. Well, he was born in 78, but he talks about the 70s like he was there. So I can only imagine how it was for someone who actually was there. <laughs> you know, you know, through all of it, and remembering, you know, people coming back from Nam, and re and remembering the original gas crisis, which happened in 1977 when under Jimmy Carter. I remember that. Um, for some odd fucking reason, I've always had a very sponge-like absorption of the history that's going on around me, because my grandfather taught me a lot about history for. World War II and pre-World War II, which is what has led to this very natural conversation that I'm able to have with all of these different political pieces going on around the world currently. Now, it's taken me almost 50 years to develop a voice for that. So, you know, I don't want to jump too far ahead. It's, it's your interview, so you set up the premise here, but, you know, whenever you're dealing with somebody who turned around on my, my fifth birthday, my dad was playing in a small club with a group known as Molly Hatchet. And they play a song called Now You're Messing With the Son of a Bitch. They brought out a Huffy decorated in Harley Davidson stickers uh, in the middle of that show, and I was in the bar that they were playing at. So you're dealing with somebody who grew up that kind of a way, but I also had a very natural attention to detail whenever it came to historic events that I'm able to remember and recall, not all truistically, but at the same time, I do have a, a little bit of a, uh, there's a romanticism about everybody who remembers their youth. You know what I mean? Yes. And uh, so I don't over romanticize those instances because there was a lot of very defining moments that happened during those 10 years from you know 70 to 80 and then coming up in the 80s with uncle ronnie here with ronald reagan and, and the end of the cold war all of these things are very very much embedded and etched in my head because they were all so struck with steel there were so many repeated messages that were beat into us in such a very specific way i grew up in a, in a very specific time where you were promised at least three or four things were going to happen to you 
This is at least as a North American youth, okay? Maybe not in Canada, because you guys are a lot fucking nicer than we are. But <laughs> at the end of the day, <laughs> you know, the, the three or four things that I was promised without a doubt was going to fucking happen to me is that more than likely I'm going to catch AIDS, probably I'll be kidnapped, maybe there will be a tornado or a nuclear bomb that goes up that I can protect myself if I hide my head under the desk with a book over my head, and you'll probably end up dying being addicted to drugs. These are the four messages that I received over and over and over and over. A message of propaganda during the 80s. That's what it was like growing up here in the United States. Now, everybody romanticizes it like Knight Rider and fucking Miami Vice and all this shit. But all of the behind-the-scenes stuff was very scary. And I paid attention to the very scary shit. Wow. I, um, for me personally, uh... I didn't start paying attention to politics until maybe closer, I'd say the mid-90s, like, well, 97. That's when I, I, I thought, I used to think that Bill Clinton was the shit. He was the best. But that's well, what he played, he played saxophone and smoked weed. He didn't inhale. And at that point in time, we all knew that he got a blowjob under the Oval Office desk. <laughs> so... Yeah, of course he's the shit at that point in time. But whenever you look at things from a historical point of view, going into all of that, the death of hair bands, uh, the transformation of MTV from heavy metal and actual rock and roll and grunge, and then it was Jersey Wars. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and... Uh, uh, you know, rap and everything. It was like, remember whenever they used to actually play music and now it's pregnant at 16 or, you know, whatever the fuck. All of that shit started in the 90s. I know. I know, but I, I, I'm i always going to be partial to the 90s. It's like what you were saying before, you romanticize your youth. For me, my youth yeah. was the 90s. I get it. Yeah, exactly. So that's why everybody brings these two different points of view to these, you know, these kinds of discussions. Whenever I, whenever I hit on Bill Clinton, the, the reason I hit on him, of course, people of your age are going to remember, you know, he played the saxophone, he smoked weed, he got a blowjob. Fuck, he must be fucking cool. What I remember is that he inherited the White House with a majority in the Democratic Senate and House and then lost it during his midterm and almost lost his reelection because he was trying to be impeached, or they were trying to impeach him, he lost that much control of the House and Congress and Senate here in the United States, where his second term was very, very much on the wire. That was whenever Ross Perot came in. And we were all talking about, like, hey, man, this third-party idea, this is really fucking cool. Like, you don't have to be a Republican. You don't have to be a Democrat. There's this third guy. There's a third idea who kind of straddles everything that both of the other guys are saying, but he's not old school politician. And that was the beginning of the clean out the swamp and term limits ideas, which everybody brought up whenever Trump was president. But it was brought up originally whenever Bill Clinton got elected into office. And all of us acted like we fucking forgot about it. That's the scary part that I remember versus the romanticized version that you remember. Right. So I, I want to get into more of this 
I, I got to be honest with you, I love politics. It's one of my favorite topics, and nobody, nobody likes to talk about it, especially here in Canada. I can't, nobody wants to talk about politics. It's like one of those taboo things. You don't talk about religion, you don't talk about politics. So I, I want to get into that, but I just, I just want to hear for my listener's sake how you came up with the, the podcast and how it got started before we move on. Okay, um, so where we left off and where the podcast started. Um, the original inception of the podcast was probably 10 or 12 years ago. Me and my best friend, Joe Schreiber, who's the original co-creator of the What Your F and Vision Network, um... We we would sit around our table and just be fucking blasted out of our fucking minds, be higher and fuck, and be like, you know, this this would be fucking gold if we were allowed to be on the radio. And then through the creation of technology and catching up here in southern Indiana, <laughs> which ended up being many years later, about tw- circa twenty nineteen, before COVID. Um, I was like, bro, here's here's our way to be able to do us on the microphone. We don't need a radio station. We can talk however the fuck we want about whatever the fuck we want and say whatever and just be totally off the cuff. We don't have to be scripted or rehearsed. Just drop a topic in the middle of the, in the middle of the table. This year's Oscar nominations, our favorite Oscar nominee, our favorite TV series. That's what we gravitated towards at the beginning, which is the creation of the What's Your F and Binge Network. Mm-hmm. What we originally did uh, was that we would have celebrity guests on and um, uh, people from all walks of life as well, but also fellow podcasters. So you're dealing with the list of personalities from A to Z. And we would have them come on our show, and we would not let them tell us what their favorite show they're currently binge-watching is. And so we would go through a series of questions of basic reporting skills of who, what, where, when, and why, and guess what show it is they're currently binge-watching was. The original premise of the show which would have been great if we would have had some sort of funding <laughs> or backing so that way neither one of us would have to work so we would be able to actually a lot all the time needed to this. We did not actually look at fast forward three months from now, we've interviewed 12 people and they've given us 12 different TV series that have anywhere from three to 20 seasons to them. <laughs> we didn't take that far ahead. We just thought it was a cool idea because we know so much about TVs and movies. That's awesome. So we ended up having people bring, then they fast forward at, uh, about 20 episodes of this. We're very good. We're able to guess on a rate of about eight out of, seven, uh, eight out of 10 people. We're able to guess what their series was without needing hints or extra questions, or whatever the fuck it was. Between me and Joe, we're able to figure it out. Even if we haven't watched this series, we've read enough liner notes on TV series to be able to guess pretty much what it is that you're fucking talking about. And, you know, whatever we ask, who, what, when, where, and why, then we're able to give return questions. It's basically like point-counterpoint. 
on an interview, and we were able to nail down a large amount of people's TV series they were watching. Everything from hoarders to, um, uh, um, fuck it, man, you fucking name it. We, we had... We had so many obscure shows brought to our show because people brought it as a challenge to stump us. Like, all of a sudden, it's like, Bojack Horseman, like, we're supposed to fucking know that? <laughs> or Infinity Train, we're supposed to fucking know that? And it got to the point where on one episode, some fucking asshole, I can't, I'm not going to say any names or anything like that, but um, him and his wife were a writing team who did uh, romantic novels and the TV series that he brought to us was Virgin River. And I was like, how in the fuck do you expect two guys who are in their mid mid to late 40s, one of them used to be a fucking biker and a strip club fucking bouncer, the other one is fucking used to cook meth in the fucking desert of fucking Arizona. How do you fucking expect us to come up with this as an answer? This is ridiculous. So we dropped that whole shtick. It was great at the beginning, but as, as our publicist talked it up, it became a challenge for the guests to come on and bring something so obscure we would never be able to guess it. So that way they could look smart. Before you go on, can I give you mine for free? I, I, I you won't have to guess. I'll tell you. But but here's he, here's the trade off. You can't make fun of me. Okay. Uh, I'm be, I'm rewatching Little House on the Prairie. Oh, me shit. You're talking about one of the biggest smoke shows of the 70s and 80s as uh, the daughter who grew up to be the smoke show redhead? Yes. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> that is very ingrained in anybody my age's DNA, okay? <laughs> it was... Uh, it... Now, would I be able to get there in five questions or less? Maybe, because, you know, the way we would lead in is, okay, is this a time period piece? And then, of course, you would have to say yes. Yes. Okay, okay, is this set in a very specific state, or is this set in an area? Or, you know, like, what's the demographic? Is this based around a certain family? You would have to say yes, it's in a certain state. You would have to say yes, it's around a certain family. Now we're getting there. I might be able to get to that in six questions or less. But, yeah, Little House on the Prairie, man, that's fucking uh, Americana at its finest. It was one of my mother, my late mother's favorite, if not her favorite TV show, it was one of them. <laughs> I guarantee it. Anybody who grew up, if, if she was in her 50s, 40s or 50s by the 70s and 80s, then, yeah, she grew up with that show. Even if she was only in her 40s by the end of the 80s. She grew up with that TV series with Michael Landon and, and everybody else. And that was a CBS staple for, ah, fuck, man, I want to say almost 16 years. Yeah. At that point in time, maybe the second longest running continuous TV series period piece besides MASH. Yeah, I think so, yes. Yeah, whenever you're talking about that <laughs> kind of rarefied air, okay, and for anybody who's young out there and you're like, fucking MASH, Little House on the Prairie, that's fucking stupid. Okay, well, the longest running series you have right now is Pregnant in 16, homie. <laughs> okay? 
We're talking like real writing and real actors. <laughs> so, so how did you make the switch from this uh, format to your current format? Life. Um, the biggest thing was, okay, uh, the recording schedule wasn't that out of hand. Okay, having guests come on. But the way Joe and I did it was we interviewed the guests guess their show or didn't you know like i said we had about a seven or eight out of ten success rate then we would watch the series and come back with its rating on the second half of the show so we would do a two-hour show the first half of the live recording of the guest the second half a week later, three weeks later, six weeks later, <laughs> of watching the entire goddamn TV series. Oh. <laughs> so, we came up with the hashtag, and you, you can plug this in on Twitter right now, it still comes up, even though we haven't done a actual show of What's Your F and Binge for almost a year and a half or two years. You can still plug in hashtag dumpster juice and it will bring you to my show. <laughs> For anybody <laughs> who brought us a show that we thought was absolute fucking film. And, uh, and, and if not, if we didn't consider it absolute film, we'd rate it on a scale of one to ten. So um, we, uh, the shows that garnered the um, title of dumpster juice was Riverdale. Virgin River, Infinity Train, Bojack Horseman, and I want to say there was maybe another one. But anyways, we had so many interviews that we came up with four shows that were just absolute fucking filth and trash guys. And we would lead off every every interview, I'm sorry, or conversation with, okay, keep in mind, if you're good, if this is the show you want us to guess, keep in mind our top ten includes Breaking Bad, Game of Thrones, Mayans, uh, uh, what, uh, what was the other one? Uh, Pinky Blinders, um, then uh, Sons of Anarchy, and, and you know shows along those lines. Okay, you're dealing with two like forty, almost fifty year old dudes, and these are our top ten. So if this is the show you're bringing us, how do you think we're going to rate this show? And we had somebody, the last show that we did was the guy who brought Virgin River to us. <laughs> now, I'm not going to mention his name. He's a voice actor. He does like this Hallmark voiceover work bullshit. And I was like, this motherfucker is so cockled by his fucking wife that this is the show he brings to us to actually have to waste our time on. This motherfucker can't even control his own own remote control. Like, I trashed him. I was like, this is enough. <laughs> 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 it was horrible, okay? Like, that's that's like going into How Howard Stern territory or whatever the case is. But, like, I was just like, this is fucking crazy. Well, anyways, Joe at that point in time, his wife and him had tried for many, many years and she ended up being 38 and him 41 and then giving birth to a very lovely little girl uh, after many failed attempts, okay? And uh, his whole heart, his whole purpose, and his whole life 
developed into caring for a jelly bean is, is what I call it, okay? Um, so, you know, life took its path on that, so then I was left to... Not that I can't rely on Joe to show up on the shows that we were setting, but, you know, like, if you got a baby crying in the fucking background and you're a first-time dad at 40, you know, like, at 40, I'd already been through a couple kids. Like, it's like, fucking let the kid cry. Give it a bottle, whatever. <laughs> no, that's not, you know, <laughs> that's not the way Joe and Sarah are wired, okay? It's just the way it is. And I love them for that. They have become so much more and better parents and a better father and mother than anything I can give an example of. So I will not take take anything from them. So we had to reach a, a mutual agreement. I was like, when you can and when you will, we will do a show and we will do it under the What's Your Up and Binge banner. But in the meantime, I have to do this. And the... Uh, impetus uh, to all of this was a very dramatic change in my life that um, I won't discuss any details of, but I lost a wife. I'm so sorry. And, yeah, it's okay, man. It is what it is. Like it, it, uh, 24 months ago, I would have fucking hung up on you right now for saying that. Uh, which is not a good thing or a bad thing, okay? You didn't do anything wrong. I'm just saying, like, that's where I was because of that incident, okay? Mm-hmm. So, um, I went through a very horrible downward spiral. Tried to re- recover in whatever different ways. I lived homelessly in a truck. <laughs> Lived in uh, camping and hunting grounds in uh, middle uh, Kentucky. Uh, lived by a campfire and with a bow and arrow, turned up a couple fucking does and bucks and made it through the next four or five months. It got warm. And I came out of it. And somewhat, I don't know, uh, very fractured. Not fragile by any shake of the fucking stick. Uh, that's not going to be what anybody tries to apply as a definition to me. I'm not fragile by any shape of the mean. Um, I used to fight for a living whenever UFC was first starting as tournament fighting uh, here in North America. We had another promotion that was competing for fighters and competing for audience called Hook and Shoot Fighting. I fought in that. I fought in 23 professional fights. I trained in wrestling. I went to Dutch Mantel's wrestling school. Um, came out, found out that I was not a good hand or a good worker. <laughs> I was too quick to temper and too quick to throw some potatoes and throw some real fucking punches when it was not needed. I did not have the actual patience, patience I thought I did going into it. So the wrestling career was uh, quickly thrown out the window. One of my best friends who actually ran the promotion here in Southern Indiana, along with, um, um, do you know Jim Cornette? Do you know that name? I frig, I'm the, I'm in one, I'm a big fan is what I'm trying to say. <laughs> I was listening, okay. I was listening to one of his episodes earlier today while I was working actually. Was it the uh, Jim Cornette on Ric Flair's last wrestling match? No, no, no. It, uh, I listened to his drive-through. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. It, okay, all right. So he's covered so many subjects, but the most recent one that I saw was Jim Corn, Jimmy Cornette talking about, and it was, I think it was on the drive-thru or maybe the Jim Cornette experience. I don't know which one. He has two different channels on YouTube, but he was talking about Ric Flair's last match. And it's like, fuck, man. Like, I came up and I wrestled in the same Coliseum that Jerry Lawler wrestled in and fucking was there whenever the fabulous ones and whenever Jerry Lawler and Austin Idol fucking took the belts off the Road Warriors and all of that fucking shit here in Southern Indiana. That's like part of the subculture of where I grew up in, okay? So I thought I wanted to be a wrestler. And so I ended up going through Dutch Bentel School. I trained with Dutch Bentel, trained a little bit with Bill Dundee and handsome Jimmy Valiant. You know how fucking jealous I am of you right now? <laughs> uh, don't be, because it's fucking horrible, all right? Here's the big deal. Back then, in the early 90s, whenever you're dealing with all of these big names and their schools, what they generally will do is abuse you. <laughs> <laughs> they will rough you up, they will abuse you, they will stretch you, they will fucking hammer you down without teaching you how to take bumps. Then they will teach you how to run ropes. That's the way wrestling school 30 years ago out operated. They weeded all of the week out of the chaff. Okay? So, because I grew up with Eric Ackers, whose uh, father controlled the Evansville Coliseum, which every Wednesday night, Jerry Lawler, Bill Dundee, Jimmy Valiant, Austin Idol, all of these guys, everybody you've ever fucking heard of from the early 90s, they all came through here. I grew up being able to run around in the locker room with all these guys. So obviously the ideal situation was me become a wrestler. The problem was I didn't have the actual temperament to work a match. And um, Eric uh, soon invested into the hook and shoot fighting program. And he was like, bro, it's going to take a long time to get you to actually work a good fucking match with anybody who's a headliner of a card, why don't we just have you fight? And I was like, sure, what the fuck ever, when the fuck ever. And that's the kind of guy I was in my mid-twenties. Right. It's not good, it's not cool, it's not bad, it is what it is, okay? Okay. You're dealing with, you know, somebody who was raised by bankers and, you know, all of this shit. And um, so, you know, to be able to throw hands was above and beyond everything, okay? Uh, the ability to take a punch and throw a punch. So when I worked matches, which I worked uh, matches with um, uh, Brian Christopher and, and Too Sexy, Bill Dundee's uh, son, and, and a lot of different people here in the area, uh, I even worked in uh, Ohio Valley Wrestling with, uh, with Big Show Paul Wright at that time. He was actually called... Um, worked a few cards with those people, tag team matches primarily, and I was just not a good hand. If anybody got snug or too tight with me, I was throwing taters, okay? It's just the way it was. <laughs> so it took about, I don't know, less than 20 matches, and Eric was like, you're not, you're not a good guy in the locker room, bro. you like, you get off the rails way too fucking seen. You're not, everybody knows you're just not there right. Um, Headwise, So he put me in hook and shoot promotions and I traveled from Southern Indiana to Clemson, South Carolina, to Birmingham, Alabama. I went to Jacksonville, Florida. All together I wrestled, uh, I fought and um, 
participated in 24 pro fights. In the meantime, behind the curtains, I also participated in about, uh, I don't want to lie, because Eric has since passed away, so I don't have anybody to actually check me on this uh, recollection here, but I think there was either 17 or 18 just prize bouts that were basically fight club fights, okay? Okay. And that's the way it was in the 90s, okay? Nobody, don't take any aspersions to this. It's, this is, you can look this up. It's a historic fact. It is what it is. There's even fight, uh, fight videos of Christopher S. Michaels, uh, which was my uh, wrestling name, but you, it's, the video is so goddamn bad, you can't even fucking tell it is, it, it's me. But at the same time, uh, these bare knuckle fights that were happening in the mid-90s, late 90s, uh, before the UFC became what it truly became, okay? That's the simplest way for me to explain all of that. From the early to the late 90s, I, uh, I bounced in all the strip clubs, here in Mid-America, I worked everywhere from Deja Vu in Indianapolis to Louisville, uh, in Owensboro, Kentucky, to Evansville, Indiana, and, and St. Louis, and the, uh, the Silver Saddle, and the Roxy, and all these other clubs. I was a bouncer there, um, rode everywhere, you know, it is what it is, and whenever I showed up in town, it was basically just to work a couple of weekends at the strip club, get some money under, under my belt, so that way I could bet on myself to fight in these um, non-section matches. Wow, that's that's quite a story. I'm, I'm still jealous. <laughs> no, you, I mean, it, it's a cool story, man. It really is as far as, like, you know, being on the train with Dutch and fucking handsome Jimmy Valiant. And, and, and the most I, I, I took from him is maybe, like, six or seven of his like super famous hip tosses he had this very cool way of digging deep and bringing you over very high it was almost like a high spot back in the day this very cool high spot hip toss very simple move you're taking a simple bump you're just getting over in the air and uh, uh he trained us on how to do that training with bill dundee on on working off the second rope not the top rope second rope Power clotheslines, working the ropes on a two or three rope exchange, cross, you know, whenever you're doing the crossfire, working those ways, dropping, jumping up, doing a high jump. And it, it was very cool, very cool. And whenever you're in there in the ring with somebody who you've grown up watching, obviously you're going to do whatever the fuck they tell you. And then whenever they put you in the ring with an unannounced finish, <laughs> <laughs> things get kind of fucking weird which that was also at the time of the ECW okay so the extreme matches going off off the record and out of hand that was regular practice I was in matches with uh, I was in two matches with Sandman and one match with Sabu three matches with Brian Christopher and um Couple matches uh, in a handicap. I was in one handicap match with Paul Wright, and then a tag team match uh, uh, against him with Brian Christopher. So, um, you know, it is what it is, and I, I just was not a good hand. I did not have the right temperament 
that I saw it growing up. You know, so many of these pro wrestling stars, they're like, you know, I watched it and I loved it and I did everything to absorb it. My biggest thing was at that time getting in with all of these mid-promotional guys, these mid-card guys at the high level, you know, they throw fucking, they throw punches, y'all. Okay, don't get twisted. They hit. I've heard. Somebody connected and tainer with me. We're getting in. (laughs) And at that point in time, I'm training Muay Thai and Jiu-Jitsu. And so, okay, all right, let's fucking get down. And that's whenever Eric was like, you need to be in hook and shoot. You don't have the right temperament for that. So my wrestling career was very short-lived, and my fight career was uh, a lot longer than it probably should have been. But it was a very eventful and fun thing, you know? That's, like I said, that's that's an amazing story. And so now you have this this podcast, and I love the fact that you say what the fuck you want. You're very direct. You're very blunt, and people hear that and they they it they just resonate with that approach. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And uh, so uh, the the whole fight game and 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 all of that stuff is actually something that I leave completely out of the Christopher S. Rutter Tell Me Like It Is podcast. It has nothing to do with any of it. The the only difference is, and I don't know, maybe this is the persona or something that I subconsciously created. Like, if I was able to put this persona or put this mic work together at that point in time with somebody who would shoot who would stretch people, who would fucking get in the corner and fucking do dirty work. If I was able to put this together with what that was now, maybe it would be a totally different experience. But back in those days, it was a very much dog-eat-dog world. And you either had the favor of the promoter or you did not. And whenever it came to the finish, if it was an unplanned finish, the ref would come in and slide in and tell you, okay, this is three count or not. Okay, and if you weren't in favor, like you were always getting not the three count, and then you would end up pissed with somebody who threw, in my, what it ended up being later is somebody who, they're trying to throw taters, and your punches are fucking water, bro. <laughs> That's, and I'm never going to mention any names, okay? Never will, because those guys went on to play in the WWE, and I did not. But your punches are fucking water. So... It is what it is, so I ended up doing something that, I don't know if it benefits you or whatever the case is, but I ended up doing something that ended up being a a lot longer. It lasted quite a few years. I was able to bounce at strip clubs and do all this shit with escort services and everything. All these cool things that a lot of guys think are very cool stories and a lot of really cool fringe benefits attached to it, (laughs) (laughs) which... You know, once or twice a week, maybe that's the case, but the rest of the time, it's a goddamn nightmare. Just throw somebody over your shoulder and get the fuck out of the hotel. Yeah. That's kind of the way that shit fucking worked back in those days. Whenever things were not regulated, and um, there was no big dog promotion at that point in time. Right. And uh, now if you wanted to, uh, I guess, segue 
Whoa, shit, that's a bad transition. But anyway, <laughs> um, I, like I said in the beginning, I, I'm very eager to talk about uh, politics. So I don't know if you want me to start uh, from the Canadian side of things. And I don't know how much you know about um, how Canadian politics works. But um, if, I'll fill in the blanks for if you like. Okay. All right. Um, so what we're getting ready to go into is the primaries for the midterms. The primaries basically allow you to select the people who are going to run this November against the elected official. This is the opponent of the incumbent is what's happening right now. Everybody gets to select that opponent of the person who is actually elected in office and this is our chance to vote them out or keep them in. Okay? Okay. How similar is that to what you guys are going through in Ontario? Okay, so in Canada, there's... Okay, there's three levels of government in Canada. We have, we have federal, we have provincial, which for you guys is like state government, and then we have municipal. So... Every four years, every level of government has to go... For the listeners' sake on this, how does Ontario, Canada translate to that three-layer discussion? Okay, so specifically in Ontario, this year, um, we're we're going to the polls twice. Once for provincial and once for municipal. So for provincial... We have three main parties, and each each party has a leader. So, for argument's sake, if Party A gets gets uh, the the most votes, they'll get they'll get the most seats, even if they don't have a majority. And the leader of the party becomes the premier, which for you guys would be like the governor. Okay, that's what I wanted to know. At what level is it similar to the governor of the state? Like, I live in Indiana. Right. And we have a governor. And then within Indiana, the capital of Indiana is Indianapolis, and they have a mayor. Yes. And okay. so, in, I, I, I can't speak for the rest of the provinces, but in Ontario, we... The, the all of Ontario in October of this year we're going for our municipal election the municipal election will elect a mayor city council and school trustees and that happens every and that happens every four years now it it, it, it never goes to where you're you you have all three elections in in one year that rarely ever happens they're usually staggered that's what we call the midterms okay because you have the national elections and then the state and local senate and house elections which i'm guessing is the premier of each province that's basically like your state representative and then your senate and within each state depending on the population you can have anywhere from two to five house representatives but each state can only have two senators and only one governor. Ah. Yeah, so... And there's 50 states in the United States, right? Yes. So this this is where things become convoluted. And I think it's a very defining 
thing between our two countries because you guys also have a parliament, right? Yes. Okay. We have the parliament. We have the we have the House of Co- we have the House of Commons, which is where the federal government um, meets. That's in Ottawa, and then we have for Ontario specifically, we have what's called Parliament, um, and that's here in Toronto. So for uh, Americans, Ontario, uh, Ontario would be one congressional district. For us, and Winnipeg would be another. Montreal would be another. Vancouver would be another. Um, but those are two different countries within you guys, right? No, no. Like, so Vancouver has shit to do with Ontario. So, so BC, like like how Ontario has a premier, BC also has a premier. Okay, so those are so. What is what is Trudeau? Trudeau is the prime minister, if you can call him that. Prime minister, then you have premier. Yeah, so the prime minister is the the the, the basically the president, right? And then the premiers of each province are like the governors of each state. But you guys only have what is it? Five provinces, or so? no? No, we have we have uh, we have ten provinces and like three. Territories and each one has a premier. Okay, so you guys have 10, 10 to thirteen premiers that answer up to the prime minister, which is Trudeau. Um, I don't know if if I would. Individually, I don't know if I would put it that way because each province has their own. Um, uh, I guess budget and their own powers but ultimately yeah it, it kind of go it kind of uh it kind of goes me, up to the pro- simplify it for at least my listeners okay. On this okay let's say you have the west coast the southwest the north the mid central states you have the southeast and then you have the northeast Right. The way our country is geopolitically separated is about five or six different areas. Okay. And the northeast is from Massachusetts to New Jersey. The southeast is from North Carolina to Florida. The south is from Georgia over to Mississippi. The southwest is Texas and Arizona and New Mexico. And then you have the far west, which is Wyoming, Montana, and California. Okay. That would be the way that our country is geopolitically, not geopolitically, because that's not the right term for this conversation, but that is the way our, our, our country is almost segregated based on voting values. Right. And the way that we look at the difference between the two main parties, either the right or the left, Right. Correct. So, does it translate that way into Canada? With those, so, is that the way it's being split up? No. So, how it works is we still go by total votes. Um, so, all provinces. Yeah. So when 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 there's a federal election, it's total votes. When there's a, a provi- prime minister. 
Right. I'm sorry? That's for the Prime Minister, right? Yeah, but it works the same way for every... Um, it works the same way for every level, every election. Whether it doesn't matter if it's municipal, provincial, or federal. It's mo. It's total votes. They've been talking yeah. about changing that, but uh, they haven't. Um, they haven't done that yet. Okay. So okay, in America, we have what's called the Electoral College. Have you heard of this? Yes. Okay. So in the Electoral College, California, because they have. 87 million people total, they're worth 13 electoral college votes. Whereas Mississippi, because they only have 4 million people, they're only worth 2 electoral votes. Okay. Does it kind of work this way from province to province, or is every vote count? Every vote counts. Gotcha. The problem is, is that people are not voting enough. But I, I'm sure you probably get that down there, too. We've seen that, we've seen that except for um, every... This is a very weird stat here in, in uh, North America, uh, including you guys, is that from the time period of 1972 to 1996, which for us is everything from Nixon to Clinton, okay? Okay. You got Nixon, you got... You got uh, uh, Carter, you have Reagan, you have the first Bush, and then you have two terms of Clinton. Each electoral process resulted in less and less votes. And then it kind of leveled out with the Bush two terms, and then once we brought in Obama, the votes went up, and then once we brought in Clinton, Hillary versus Trump, the votes went even higher. All of a sudden, we had this huge vote count. But for about 50 years, it leveled and kind of te te tapered off. Is that what you guys saw too? Um, I don't really... I, I gotta be honest with you, I don't really keep track of the total number of votes. I do know that not enough people vote. Um, I did... I did Notice that there was an uptick the very first time that Justin Trudeau ran for prime minister because people thought he was the second coming of Jesus Christ, and I'm not kidding you. <laughs> okay, so that's a very interesting statement from a Canadian. Okay, all right, so let me... Uh, so this is where we're getting into a simulcast deal, okay? <laughs> all right, so... Trudeau, the first time he ran for election was, give or take, 10 years ago, right? I think it was 2015. Okay, seven years ago. All right, cool. All right. When he first came in, he came in as very anti-partisan. He came in also as very, what the masses tell us to do is what we are going to do. And then since then, he has turned into this dictator, tyrannical set. How much are, were you guys aware of the fact that he graduated from the Young Leaders uh, Development Group of the World Economic Forum as led by Klaus Schwab? I actually, I actually didn't know that. I, I knew frighteningly little about this guy other than the fact that I knew who his father was and I knew he came from money. 
Um, and Trudeau's father was the first person who enacted the Emergencies Act, which basically declared martial law. Yes. Okay. Now, so how aware of you uh, of that during his first term versus his last term? How much more politically aware, globally aware, have you all become over the past seven years? What do you mean by globally? Like, are you talking about specifically what he's done? I'm talking about the fact that you didn't even realize that his father enacted the original martial law during World War II, and then come to find out, here he is, this global communist, um, enacting tyrannical acts. He's basically... uh, um, Labeling truckers for freedom as Nazis. How, what was the difference in that learning curve? I think that nothing that he does surprises me, but it's only gotten worse. I mean, the, the whole trucker thing, that was a huge point. But he had already fallen off the rails before that. I mean, we're talking. We're talking. There's a lot of different instances you can bring up for that, and I'll, I'll let you do that because you 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 have to be more of an expert than I do. I'm only speaking from a preliminary kind of point of view on him. So we're talking. We're talking about a guy who is a self-proclaimed feminist, and that's bullshit. We're talking about a guy who in who who claim. All right, sorry about that little technical difficulty. Uh, no, so what I was saying was um, he he wants to enforce um, that that everyone has to follow these 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 high set of rules, specifically leaders and politicians. For example, there was a a, um, a, a member of the government within his own party that was accused of sexual harassment. Well, he fired his ass and got rid of him. And then come to find a little while later, a woman accused him of groping her, uh, you know, back before he became a politician. But he decided to just ignore that and he didn't have to... uh, he didn't have to step down. He didn't have to step aside. He didn't have to really even address it. I think he maybe said a few words, but that was it. No apology. Nothing. It's like he's above. He he's above it. That lady, that lady that we're talking about, who was a member of the parliament, right? Uh, was that the first instance you saw of the rules for thee do not apply to me? Yes. And no. The woman was actually a reporter, but yes. Yes, the, that it was the first time. And then there was the whole, I don't know if you heard about the whole SNC-Lavalin uh, scandal where he went to one of um, the, the, um, the government, uh, like an MP, an MP, which is a member of parliament, on his team, part of the Liberals. Yeah, went to her and said, because she was in... Uh, um, she was in uh, in charge of like uh, the federal court system, and he's like, "Don't bring charges against these guys. Do as I say." And she ended up exposing him, and it was a whole big thing. And uh, I mean, those two ladies. Was it uh, he said she said thing, or do you guys have a version of Freedom of Information Act where you're able to actually bring forth documents? 
of, of recorded conversations. I don't know. Present as we we do have a Freedom of Information Act, but I don't know how deep that that goes, and I don't know um, what it would include and not include. Probably wouldn't include private conversations. I'm thinking. Okay, so our Freedom of Information Act of anybody who is of uh, an appointed position. Okay, let's just take this is a. Uh, I don't want to get into this conversation yet because I know this is coming up later. But let's just say that um, you have a governor, which for us is um, the leader of a state, a state like Michigan or a province within Ontario. Is that the way that works? No, Ontario is the province, but yes. Okay, all right. So there are different districts within Ontario, the province, right? Yes. And each one of them has their own governor or gubernatorial representation. It's just called a different name. What do you guys call that? So each city in Ontario has a mayor. Okay, all right. So you guys call it a mayor, we call it a governor. Whatever, same difference at the end of the day. Whenever you're dealing with the electoral process, just different names. You, your your guys' names of things are more attached to uh, what French, what France and England has done, right? That's where the names of all of this kind of comes from and translates from within French uh, Canada, right? For, for uh, yeah, I would say for the most part. Okay, all right, and, and not to oversimplify it, I, I don't want to get into, like, a whole historical conversation on it, but let's just say, for example, that there is a governor who, um, we had an uncovered plot that she was going to be kidnapped, and that plot was uncovered, and then come to find out the people who were brought up on charges uh, were actually led and taught and funded and instructed by FBI agents. Wow. How that for a mind blower, okay? That actually happened with the governor of Michigan. Really? And it's being attached to the January 6th, the, what they now call the J6 invasion. I did not know and that. What? Yeah, and this is a very fucked up thing. And, and this is something that's being very underplayed by the press. And that's something that I want to bring up next with how your all's press plays with the politicians and the politics and how they actually portray that to the citizens. Because one of the big things that I am a uh, big proponent of is you cannot believe a single word that is given to you by the paid-for corporate media press, which includes CNN, which includes Fox. It's both sides of the aisle. The Biden administration in 2020 gave $1 billion to CNN, MSNBC, CNBC, uh, NBC, and ABC, and Fox to not spread any quote-unquote disinformation about the vaccination. You were not allowed to speak badly of it. 
if you took that payment? Well, I know that in Canada, uh, Justin Trudeau likes to brag that he owns the fucking CBC, which is our our main national news. I guess you would compare it to CNN. Um, So I don't watch CBC for anything, not even the Maple Leafs games anymore. Um, I don't really trust any of... Sorry, your old CBC is very much like our CNN and CNBC, and to a a large degree, even Fox, which uh, represents both right and left sides of the aisles. It's an all-inclusive thing. The only thing that separates Fox from all of the others, the ABC and NBC and all of these other networks, you guys have like just a few networks compared to our multiple, right? Correct. So, okay, so let's make this very simple mathematically. If you have four networks who are speaking for and reinforcing what the government says, and only one gov- and only one network who speaks out against it, then you're dealing with an 80-20 split and a very manipulated, left-leaning, or democratic-leaning in the United States' version, a very democratic-leaning of... Uh, you, you, you can't be against pro-choice. You can't be against gun laws. You can't be against, uh, you know, uh, uh, any black person killed by a white person uh, who ends up being psychopathic or schizophrenic. But you completely ignore a black person who kills a white person under the same conditions. Is your own press that extreme? I wouldn't say that, no, but I will say that, like, I'll give a quick example, that whole thing that happened in, in Buffalo, um, what was it, yesterday? Uh, it, Saturday? Saturday, sorry. It was on the news uh, today, and they're specifically only interviewing uh, African Americans, They're from what I was able to Man. see. If you'll notice, you will say that they are saying, we cannot allow open hunting season on black people. Really? I, I didn't now, I didn't catch okay. that part. Okay. Oh, yeah. I'll send you the clips, bro. Now, within 24 hours in California, there was an Asian who went into a uh, Presbyterian church, uh, which is titled UCC, United Californian uh, something. Uh, uh, But it was an Asian who went in and shot up a whole church of other Asians. And the press, side by side, besides the Buffalo incident, because it was a white guy who was obviously deranged and was actually detained over a year ago because he just, just graduated high school a year ago. And he threatened to shoot up his high school. They detained him, and they didn't have any evidence or proof that he's going to do it or that he would do it. But then he ended up doing it. But in in California, an Asian shooting up a church of Asians is not a hate crime. Now, I'm sorry. If you walk into a church with 
automatic handguns and you shoot up that fucking church, you obviously hate those motherfuckers, don't you? Yeah. I want or you're deranged, okay? So either side of the argument applies. But whenever it comes to a white guy shooting the black guys or the Asians versus, uh, shooting the Asians, we only in our press and only in our news reporting cycle here in, in America, we only pay attention to the white guy who shot the black people. We do not pay any attention to the Asian who shot other Asians. We do not pay any attention to the black guy who shot up a white high school just two months ago in Dallas. We do not pay any attention to the black supremacists who ran over the Christmas parade in the middle of fucking Wisconsin. I did not. We, we actually, the press was describing it as a runaway SUV. By the time it was all over, they would not give the guy's identity. Even though on TikTok and on Twitter and on Facebook, he was a recognized black supremacist. That's the separation or the division or the tribalism that is going on with the American press. Are there any instances like that in Canada? Like, what is the marginal racial group? Like, is it Eskimos or Indians or... Like, I don't know what you guys would call them versus what we call them, but what's the marginalized racial group that no matter what they do, it gets completely ah, talked over and re-narrated? Do you guys have that? Um, we do what have... What about the railroad explosions by the Indian nations? We do have... Uh, we do have large uh, group of indigenous people that got the shaft for so long. We've had residential school um, findings. It's like it was, uh, I don't know, a year or two. Maybe, I, I can't remember. Uh, so much has happened. But they just kept finding residential schools and they kept finding, they kept finding body, like not, uh, like remains of bodies that were buried and so for a large, uh, you know, like I was saying, the, the indigenous group definitely got the shaft for the longest. And for the for just as long, it was kept. Like, I, no one ever heard of it. And now it's all coming to light. Okay. So that is reminiscent. Okay. So we're dealing with two different countries with two different indigenous people groups. Here we call them Native Americans. There you go. You call them natives, or they're Eskimos, or they're Indian tribes. We have Indian tribes here as well. We have Native Native American land, like the Seminoles in Florida. Did you know that every natural-born Seminole in Florida, which is no different than the Indians that you have in the eastern province of Canada, they're just separated by a few hundred miles of fucking uh, um, fuck. Uh, a, a few hundred miles of, of um, exploration. I'm sorry. Okay. Um, but you're dealing with the Seminoles and you're dealing with the Northeastern Canadian uh, Native Americans. Okay. I don't know what you guys call them, but here we call them Seminoles. All right. And each natural born Seminole is born a millionaire 
because of casino retributions. Wow, I didn't know that. Okay. Now, in Canada, do you guys have Indian casinos? Uh, that I'm not sure of. I know we have casinos. All right, so here... I know we have casinos. Here's, here's a big pivot point in history works as far as America versus Canada. Okay? America, obviously, we came in and we raped and pillaged Native Americans. We fucked them up. We killed them off. There's all kinds of tribes. They're no longer around. We brought in the flu. We brought in rifles when they only had bows and arrows. We fucked up and we killed off like, like in, in, in Texas, in Oklahoma, whenever you're dealing with the Comanches, we killed off 98% of their tribe just by fucking showing up. Okay? okay? I don't know what version of that you guys have in Canada. But on top of that, we have uh, the black people who are currently alive and well now who represent about 16% of our population who are asking for reparations, but the government will not hear it. We brought them over on boats. We brought them over in chains, and we forced them to work. We did way worse to them outside of killing off entire fucking tribes. We did way worse to them than we did to the Indians as far as, like, humane treatment, okay? We didn't kill them off. We used them as plow mules. It is what it is. I didn't know anybody. My dad didn't know anybody. My grandpa didn't know anybody. But at the same time, there's a huge segment of the black population who demands reparations. Back payment for how they were treated. What's your old version of that? So, we have a lot of... Uh, um a lot of those issues. Hang on, hang on real quick. I'll yep. let you gather your thoughts on this because this is like really out of nowhere. But I'm just like super curious about this because the way our press is showing and exposing these violent crimes. Because right now, the current condition, the current political condition that is going on in the United States is the only thing that matters is when a white person shoots black people. It doesn't matter if it's Muslim shooting up white people. doesn't matter if it's white people shooting up white people. doesn't matter if it's Indians shooting up Indians. doesn't matter if it's Asians shooting up Indian or Asians. The only thing that matters is when a white guy comes out and shoots some black people. So, like, what's your all's version of this kind of fucked up shit? So the media portrays it. I'm not saying it's fucked up in an abstract way. I'm just saying it's fucked up the way the media portrays it because they don't show the black on black crime or the Asian on Asian uh, crime or the white on white crime or the Muslims killing white people. They don't show that. They only show when a white guy dresses up like an Antifa fucking prick and shows up and shoots black guys. So I will. Uh, I'm not diminishing it. I'm just saying, like, what's your own version of that? So I, I will say that, um, as far as the news goes, the the black on black crime, there's not. That's not really a lot shown from what I I've seen. 
A lot of it is uh, it's front page news if it's interracial. So more if it's a white guy killing black people, yes, just like you guys. But if it is a black person killing a white person, it can be shown if the story's juicy enough. Maybe it was a domestic uh, problem or not. We've had... Sorry? It's back page shit. It's not front page shit. That's correct. Um, we've had a couple of... Uh, now, we're not really... F- I hate to say it like this, but we're not really famous for the school shootings, unfortunately, as the United States is. No, that, that's, a very, that's a very white kid American thing. Sorry to say it. It is what it is. But we've had... I grew up in Carmen, you know... Uh, um, you know, all, all of that shit in Colorado and Arizona, all of that shit. Like, that's a very white kid versus the rest of the 98% white school. Specif- kind of specifically in Ontario, specifically in within the GTA, which is around Toronto, I think we've had two incidents in the last, I want to say, eight months. Don't quote me on that, though. And, but... The way they report it, it it's 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 kind of really fucked up. They don't if if for example if the person's underage, they don't show no picture. They won't even say a name. Uh, the person's protected under the Young Offenders Act. Yeah, because yeah, they're a minor. Yeah. Um, I personally believe that if you take a gun and you go into a school and you kill somebody or you attempt to kill somebody, I don't give a fuck how old you are. You need to be exposed. That's my Here's personal a very belief. Cookie, or not a cookie cutter explanation, but this, here's a very clear exploration of how the media portrays this. Before Buffalo, here where I live, okay? Yeah. In northwestern Kentucky, there was a black male who shot at and hijacked a cop car a white police officer, and then there was another police chase where the um, person they were pursuing happened to be black. They didn't allow, they didn't catch him until he got into Indiana, and but he shot at and injured three other officers, all white. Have you heard about any of this? Nope. Okay. The day of Buffalo, how much of that have you heard? Um, I heard it was, first I heard it was a mass shooting, and I, I gotta be honest with you, like, I, I had a busy weekend, I don't sit in front of the news, uh, so I only heard bits, the, uh, more bits about it this morning, that's where I was, uh, and then when I came, like, cause I'm a delivery guy, right, so I go in in the morning, and then when I come back, there's a, there's a TV right where the punch clock is, so... Uh, when I left in the morning, they were saying, oh, you know, it was a mass shooting. Uh, it was it was killing black people. And then when I came in back in the afternoon, it was, uh, inter- like I was saying before, interviews with specifically black people getting their reactions. And the reaction was, we cannot allow open hunting season on black people. That is a specific clip that's being played on CNN right now, okay? Now, that's besides the point. 
I'm not, I'm not going at it at, at this direction. Let me get all the way around it. Within 24 hours of the Buffalo shooting, there was an Asian man who went into a Presbyterian church and shot and killed one person, injured five others. The congregation subdued him. But because it was Asian on Asian, they said this can't be a hate crime. Now, I'm, I, I'm asking you this as just a regular person, not a personality, not a news entity. Doesn't it take a degree of hate to walk into a church and start shooting people? Yes. Okay, so the way it's actually portrayed on the news, and here in America, this is an incredibly huge, hot topic, especially coming off the Trump administration. And one of the things that I told everybody today, later we had the Asian on Asian crime, and here in the, at least in the North American press, did you guys hear about the shooting in California where the Asian guy went in there and shot up the church? When, when was this? In the last 24 hours? Within 24 hours after Buffalo. No, I I personally never hear never heard of it, but unless it was online, because I don't watch the news. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so here's here's my question, and here's my debate uh, with this specific type of conversation in America. There has been, for the better part of the last 80 years, black people who are very attached to the flipping of the Dixieland Democrats to the Republicans and the inaction of what is called Jim Crow laws. This is whenever we told black people they couldn't drink at water fountains. That's basically what Jim Crow laws are. Are you familiar with that? No. Okay. In America, it was everywhere. Okay? Did not matter if they fought for the freedom of slaves or keeping of slaves. Afterwards, 90% of America still said, you can't drink from this water fountain if you're a Negro. Okay. okay. That's... I didn't know that. That's horrible. horrible. Fucking horrible. Okay? I don't care who you are. You need water, fucking drink water, bro. Yep. And... Okay, but... I'm three or four generations removed from that collective identity. Okay? The problem is that there are so many people who are attached to that way of thinking that if going into these primaries, which is the election cycle you guys are currently getting ready to go into, okay, my biggest thing that I've been saying for the past two years is vote them all out. 
care how much it turns everything on its head. I don't care how much chaos ensues. But introducing and eliminating all of these old blood Congress people and senators and replacing them with brand new people can only result in good things if we continue that cycle for the two-year election after 2022. So basically what I'm asking is everybody be disciplined enough for the next two election cycles to fucking vote everyone out. If you are elected, and I don't care if you're dealing with the city councilman, all the way up to the mayor, to the county prosecutor, all the way up to the senator, the Republican of the state, and then dealing with the senator and and, and uh, uh, house representative for the nation underneath the governor, if you replace all of them, if you cannot cite any bill they have passed that has benefited you personally, now keep in mind the top one percent of the nation controls ninety percent of the wealth in the United States. I don't know what it is in Canada, but if you're dealing with the top one percent controlling ninety percent of the wealth, and you replace all of their constituents, all of their yes men, all of the people who actually get um, uh, with money and pork money from the people who are actually uh, contributing and uh, what's the actual word uh, whenever you're dealing with somebody who's on Capitol Hill and all of a sudden they vote out of nowhere for something they never supported. Oh yeah, whenever you're dealing with somebody who has been paid off because of insider stock tips. You're dealing with Nancy Pelosi, who has been an elected official since JFK. Same thing with Joe Biden. They've been elected in office since John F. Kennedy was actually a president and shot in Dallas. And between the two of them, they are worth $1.3 billion on elected officials uh, uh, salary as of last year of $248,000. So 50 years of $248,000 is a lot of money, it's $10 million. But between the two of them, they're worth 1.2 billion. Holy shit. <laughs> it- okay. So whenever we look past that, and whenever we look past there's a generational contractual almost blood oath of African Americans in, in the United States that if you're not going to be a Jim Crow then you cannot ever vote Republican so that's where the stalemate is in all of this these people are so attached to they can never, they were brainwashed. You can never vote for a Republican. You can never vote for a pro-lifer. You can never 
ever vote for a pro-gunner that they cannot see their way clear of letting loose of this tackle and chain, this collar that's held them for the past 50 fucking years. And I keep expressing myself this way to a lot of these different group leaders that we have to change our rhetoric. We have to change our speech. We can't express it the way your dad did. We have to express it the way we have to now. If we're going to influence our daughters and granddaughters to not be the victims of two, three, four, five baby daddies, we're not going to allow our daughters to be influenced by social welfare and its protection. I'm not talking about pull yourself up by your bootstraps. I'm not talking about that. That's the most ridiculous thing that's been said in the past 50 years. I don't know what your all's version of that is in, in Canada, but the ability to pull yourself up by your bootstraps basically means that because you're white, you're able to do something that your grandpa didn't do because he was a dirt farmer. That's where that statement comes from. That's where pull yourself up from your bootstraps comes from. Why is it still used in political news today? I have no idea. The answer basically is because it benefits the news to separate and divide us. The best thing for news and for politicians whenever you're developing everything to a one world government or a new world order or the World Economic Forum's version of Young Global Leaders Development Group, which Trudeau graduated from under the auspice of Klaus Schwab. Have you heard of Klaus? No. He said, you feel own nothing and like it. Wow. Uh, he is the person that also you're all second in command. What's that lady's name? Fuck. She is the second under Trudeau. Christy, uh, Christine Freeland. Freeland. She also, she also uh, graduated from the World Economic Forum of Young Leaders Development Group. Yeah, um, I don't know how you feel about her, but I'll let you know that if Trudeau decides... How about her? No, what I'm trying to say is, if if Trudeau decides he's done being prime minister, she's next in line. And she's second in command. But how do you guys feel about her? Would she be elected? Well, I guess the lib the liberal supporters in this country would elect her, but I wouldn't vote for her. I, I, if it's possible, I like her less than I like Trudeau, and I hate Trudeau. <laughs> I'm aware. How prevalent is that in Canada? Um, I don't know because, you know, 
a lot of people... Yeah, Facebook every day, every minute, every hour, that you can't feed your baby? No, I don't see that. There isn't... Okay, because it isn't in the U.S. That's why I'm saying that. There isn't one post... There isn't one post that I've run into in the last... Let's call it... How, how long has this been happening? The last month, for, specifically? Um, specifically that it's become news coverage. Uh, okay, and here's what I'm getting ready to get to here in a minute. <laughs> Since it's become news coverage, it has happened to a 60% shortage across the United States in the past 30 days. Are you guys experiencing that? Well, I don't have any young children, so I, it's not like I'm shopping for it. Um, I don't. I. I've. I've heard about it. I've heard about. Sorry, go ahead. I know any people this is affecting horribly. I honestly don't know one, to be honest with you. And I know a lot of people, but it's not something that I'm. Uh, Aware, aware that it's a problem for people here, at least not yet. Um, you want to know something? Here's something that was developed as a hack 10 days ago. You can go on Amazon as a U.S. citizen and change your country code from the USA to Canada and order all the formula you fucking want and have it dropped off at your door. Really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'll send you the links to it. I did not know that. So, here's something to keep in mind, okay? While the United States, uh, a couple years ago, whenever we started going into COVID hysteria, all right? Mm -hmm. We're not even going to call it hysteria. We're just going to call it COVID. First thing that started was the lumber shortage. You guys have that? Nope. We had a... Okay. We had a serious... In Ontario, we had a serious... And I'm not... I'm not... I'm not fucking around. We had a serious uh, toilet paper, uh, hand sanitizer, and rubbing alcohol shortage. Seriously. Toilet paper, you couldn't find it anywhere. I think all of us experienced that one. Okay? <laughs> I have a World Economic Forum package from Portland, Oregon that was sent out in 2009 that included extra toilet paper, hand sanitizer, aspirin, and Tylenol. From 2009, based on what they thought was going to happen with the next pandemic after H1N1. Let's not even talk about that, okay? Let's continue with our conversation. Lumber. You guys did not have a shortage with that, right? Nope. Okay. Our average uh, 2x4 8-footer two went from $7.18 to almost $25. Holy a 4x4 8-foot section went from $12 to almost $50. Holy shit. A, 8 by 12 plywood, just an OSB plywood, regular fucking plywood that you would use to set up behind drywall. Yep. Went from 
to $75. Holy during all of this. Yeah. Okay, that's the building crisis that first started. And then after that, it was a shortage of toilet paper, hand sanitizer. <laughs> and, and rubbing alcohol. <laughs> and rubbing alcohol because... Because we had we had people here. Swipes on that shit. We and then after that, it was determined parts for automobile factories, manufacturers. Where I live here in southern Indiana, there are there is a major Toyota manufacturing facility. They went from seven days of operation in the past eighteen months. They automatically cancel six days, and then after that, the past week, they canceled the next two weeks of operation because they can't get parts for aluminum, for steel, and for microchips. Yes, the microchip uh, problem is is a big... I don't know if it's still a problem to this day, but it was a huge problem uh, for our auto industry here. It's still a problem in southern Indiana, uh, even where Toyota is manufactured. I was okay. told. So we're talking about. I was told that uh, the the building in China burnt down, and it was going to take years for them to rebuild. And that was the the facility where they made the microchips. That was what I, I was told. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and okay, so follow this line of thought. Okay. You have lumber. You have material goods to make sure everybody feels safe and comfy. Toilet paper and hand sanitizer. They put out recipes to make your own hand sanitizer. Remember that? Yeah, that's where the rubbing alcohol went. (laughs) Then after that, you can't get microchips. You can't get chrome. You can't get reinforced steel to actually manufacture automobiles. To the point where it's it's, it's disturbing Toyota's uh, distribution and manufacturing here in southern Indiana, where they make one million vehicles every quarter, they're shut down 10 of the next 30 days. Wow. Keep that in mind, okay? And then deal with the lumber shortage. (coughs) 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 Deal with the lumber shortage and the overpricing. The OSB pricing and overpricing, which you can't redeck a roof, you can't frame in a house and put in drywall if you want it to be up to code in the United States of America. And then, on top of that, currently, you can't get fruit. You can't get baby formula, which is readily available in the rest of the world. In Austria, in New Zealand, in Australia, in Italy, in Germany, in Sweden, hell. (coughs) Even Russia and Ukraine doesn't have a problem feeding its babies. It's all good. So, all of these countries (coughs) 
Yes. So, the 1993 Accord of NATO said specifically that NATO will not spread east. Okay? Okay. For everybody who is not geographically inclined, (laughs) Sweden and Denmark border Russia. For a combined total of 1,031 miles. You add the Ukraine, now you're talking 1,500 miles. All of a sudden, NATO has expanded completely east all the way to the border of Russia, completely violating the accord that was reached in 1993 called Nietzsche. I did not know that. This this was the accord that was brought in, and Canada is part of it, because you guys are part of NATO. Anytime we go into war, we bring in a thousand or so troops of your old special forces, which are highly trained, trained by us, trained by Germany, trained by Italy, NSIS, all these different groups. You guys have very specialized Special forces, you don't have a huge military, but you have very good special forces. NATO, in 1993, as signed by Clinton, before the blowjob, is that we would not expand east towards Russia. And at that point in time, there were 21 members of NATO. And ever since then, we have completely circumferenced Russia. From the southern to the northwestern point, adding eight different countries that we agreed we would never do. And why is that? During that period of time, that's a very good question. That's a very good question. During that period of fucking time, Joe Biden was assigned to Ukraine. He was the special constituent to deal with their government from the 1990s till now. The Hunter Biden laptop that was a Russian hoax, it's been proved wrong. Joe Biden receiving millions we're not talking just a couple million like you're a lottery winner. We're talking hundreds of millions of dollars transferred because his son's position in the Ukrainian 
liquefied natural gas production facility, which is the largest in Europe. This little tiny little bitty fucking section of Europe is the largest liquefied natural gas provider of all of Europe. More than Russia. Biden's son and Biden themselves have received millions of dollars of contributions from them. Millions of dollars of APAC contributions. And so has Trudeau. So has Newsom in California. This goes on and on and on. And whenever you're dealing with the French uh, uh, Prime Minister, uh, shit, I can't think of his fucking name, Moncro. And then whenever you're dealing with the Prime Minister in England, Johnson. And whenever you're dealing with the Prime Minister in um, uh, Germany, Boris, not Yeltsin, that's the old Germany, you fucking... (laughs) (laughs) Yeltsin is the old German Prime Minister Boris is the new one whenever you're dealing with Slovenia whenever you're dealing with the Ukraine all of these pact agreements are in place where they're exchanging money around and it's all on record because of FOIA Freedom of Information Act between our country your country between England the people who want to circumvent Boris uh, uh, in, in Germany, uh, the people who want to circumvent the Nationalist Party, that still fucking exist today. And in the Ukraine, the Soviet, or I'm sorry, let me speak, let me say this properly. The People's Federation of Soviet Industry and identity, which is the new form of Nazism. The Gaza special forces that have been been in place since 2014, whenever Biden funded the overthrow of the old fucking political party in Ukraine. We have been trying to get Ukraine here in the United States. We have been trying to get Ukraine at least since 2014. We have funded all kinds of infiltration. We have funded all kinds of military operations. We have helped the Russians. We helped them overtake the eastern part of the Ukraine, which includes Chimera. I have a special report going on right now. I'm waiting on my press credentials from the U.S. uh, press corps before I release this. Um, But I have been in talks with a person who is boots on ground in the Ukraine dealing with removing refugees before Russian attacks. This is all coordinated, people. This is a military distress policy procedure. The media coverage they're showing you on CNN is the same thing as Libya. In 2020, same buildings, same explosions in Ukraine in 2022. I can forward that material to you as well. Watch it frame by frame. Same building, same collapse, 
same explosions. Wow. I I can I, I give you I'm not going to give you anything specifically right now, but I can give you these little details where a person not gonna say male or female is on the ground currently, right now, with the English SKS Marine Recon, Navy SEALs, Mercenary uh, Forces, where they are actually getting rid of refugees out of areas before Russian attacks because it is all so coordinated. I have this lady live recorded. That's just... This person is a helicopter pilot who works on UN... I don't want to give too much away right now, but I I do want to say that this person works on UN rescue projects to make sure that people are pulled out of the area before the coordinated attacks between the Ukraine and Russia actually happen. The only conflict, deaths, and casualties are still happening in eastern Ukraine, around the Black Sea, around Snake Island, around the province of Chimeria, which has originally and always been a part of Russia. Yes. This is all documented. If you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I, no, I have an idea. I know about uh, Crimea, and and I've been following Snake along. Island? Do you know about that? I'm sorry? Snake Island? Do you know about it? Snake Island? No. Okay, Snake, Snake Island is uh, presumably where the Ukrainians killed off a Russian warship and said, fuck you, Russia. And then come to find out, none of it ever happened. It's all smoke and mirrors. It's a press release. Wow. I can send you the original footage versus what was released by the U.S. media. And in the meantime, driving down Highway 41 from southern Indiana to northern Indiana, you can see at least no less than five signs that say, we support Zelensky and their movement. And it's also in small little letters funded by the Democratic Party. Wow. Can I ask you a question there? Um, I, this is a theory that I'm working on. Uh, but again, I'm Canadian. I don't really know what I'm talking about. You're American. So I, I'm going to throw this to you and, and I, I'd love to get your thought on it. So... Uh-huh. I know that Trump is a very um, divisive topic. However, I have a theory that if Trump was still the president, that perhaps this invasion would not be taking place. Not because he's a good president, but because Putin's crazy, matches Trump's crazy, and maybe one is afraid of the other, and I'm not sure which one it is, and I'd love to get your thoughts on that one. 
Yeah, I, I think actually what you're dealing with here is a situation that could have occurred during Trump's presidency, but he derailed it. He met with Putin. He's actually on record saying, I threatened Putin like nobody's ever threatened him before. Him and Putin actually had a decent dialogue together. They never attacked each other. They never threatened each other. They respected each other because they both knew that at any given moment, if provoked, they would push a button. Now, there's two buttons that a president can push. All out personnel movement or all out nuclear war. Neither one of them standing across from each other stood, uh, stood comfortable pressing either button. And both of them are on record as saying that. Whereas with Biden, uh, Trudeau won't step into any of this. Um, he's much more comfortable with uh, aligning and, and maligning uh, the citizens of Canada, I think. But uh, neither uh, Trump or Putin would step into the ring with each other. And that is the greatest thing that, going back to Ronald Reagan, was ever taught to the American public. It doesn't matter whether or not you actually have your finger on the button. It's the person who is crazy enough and willing to push the button first. Exactly, and you can't expect that from a president who is also, in the very near future, if not already, a dementia patient. Yeah. Right now would be a great place for me to uh, uh, play some spots that I usually would, but I won't. Uh, uh, the reason I don't play anything from Biden press conferences is, in my opinion, he has proven that he is incredibly low-hanging fruit. It's too easy. It's too soft of a punching bag to actually go after. The problem is, uh, what you really want to look at is who is behind him and decipher that. The real question is, how far back does he go into Washington? How far back does his constituents go or his co-voters go into the Senate and Congress? And whenever you're looking at that overlapping picture, you're actually looking at people who have graduated from the WEF and um, uh, uh, the world economic leaders and the young leaders of the world development group all as led by Klaus Schwab which is the leading member, leading spokesperson of the WEF and then whenever you're dealing with Bill Gates and his actual funding of the Bill and Gates Melinda Foundation uh, developing all of their funding, they are the second leader leading funding funder of the WHO behind the United States, slightly ahead of the United Kingdom, or the UK, which makes them about seven spots ahead of you all. Bill and Melinda Gates is about, <laughs> he's on number three on the list, you guys are number 10 on the list, as far as funding the WHO, and how we're going to deal with national and worldwide pandemics. And whenever you're dealing with what has gone to recent vote within the WHO and at the UN level, based on the funding that's available and how 
dealing with the WHO and you're dealing with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, you're dealing with the founders and the funders of the people who are about ready to put in place the next testing and vaccination program of the world. Whenever you're dealing with Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, did you know that before 2019, Moderna was negative revenue, and now they are plus $69 billion in profit? I did not know that. Pfizer, in the past one year, one year cycle, not including the first quarter of this year, is plus $39 billion in profit because of the free shot. I did not know that either. So between two companies, you're dealing with almost $100 billion in profiteering off of a free shot based on how the media is manipulated dealing with a worldwide problem with a pandemic, or as I like to call it, a plandemic. I think that's well put. <laughs> um, I, I wanted to uh, throw in a couple things that I, I think I left out. Um, so, Justin Trudeau, one of the first things he did and continues to do is... He, he started an apology tour. So things that happen to whether it be black people or Asian people or indigenous people, even if it's hundreds of years ago, if it happened in Canada, the, he offers what's called an official apology. And he just wants to apologize, apologize, apologize. And then that's supposed to make it all better. Yeah, totally. Yeah, um... <laughs> That's something that he learned from Klaus Schwab. Really? And um, I, I hate to say that, but um, let me play one clip for you. Okay. okay. I, this is something I generally do on my show, but I'm going to do it for your show on this simulcast, okay? No problem. Let me get this queued up here who Klaus is. And do you know who he is? No, no, I think you... You mentioned it earlier. He's uh... you. You here. Here's here. Here's how he exactly says it. <laughs> you feel own nothing, and you feel like it. Right. You said that. Yes. Yes. Now, what movie franchise does that criminal sound like? Uh, the bad guy from Die Hard. And James Bond. Oh, yes, James Bond, yes. Yeah. All right. Hang on just a second. This is the World Economic Forum. Uh, the video clips are from November of 2021. Um, I think it's uh, really important to know that uh, the COVID-19 uh, pandemics just has accelerated certain trends which we had seen before and which actually were discussed in Davos this year, like uh, the lack of inclusion, the lack of uh, the 
to reset our global agenda, to do something about all those negative developments, including also the lack of international cooperation. Our global agenda and the international corporations. Keep those phrases in mind. This is the guy that taught Euro's prime minister. He taught our California governor, Putin, uh, Biden, Biden's son. There's countless. Everybody in the European bloc, their elected leaders graduated from this cocksucker school. Because if we don't address those issues, we will end up in a much worse world than we are today. So let's use this uh, window of opportunity and let's recreate a global framework which really is in line with the requirements of a society in the 21st century. All he's wanting to do, people, whenever you're listening to this, is he's wanting to set up the new world order. Or as it was written in his book that he published in 2017, The COVID-19 Great Reset, Build Back Better. In January, that we really started asking questions and doubles about coronavirus, and it wasn't obvious then that the virus would bring the global economy to its knees. You spent years debating the globalization models. Is it clear because of coronavirus that the planet is just too interconnected? I think we have two aspects actually contradicting each other. On the one hand, the virus, the pandemics, has reminded us how um, interdependent we are in the world, how we are part of a... Matt, does he not sound like a Fox Century 21 super high production bad guy? <laughs> yes, I'm trying to put my thumb on it. He sounds like... Okay. Uh, I, will send you, I will send you the video of the Great Reset that they put out. The World Economic Forum put it out in 2019 called the COVID-19 Great Reset. Okay. They published a video for all of their world... Uh, I'm sorry. Young World Development Leaders Group was the graduation group name of that year. I'll send it to you. So that way you can go ahead and back it up with facts to your listeners. But my listeners already know about this. So I'll go ahead and continue here, okay? Okay. Of a global destiny, a common global destiny. On the other hand, the virus also has demonstrated that we need more resilience. And um, interdependence also creates greater risks. So... What we will see is hopefully on the one hand more globalization, on the other hand probably with the redefinition uh, uh, of supply chains and so on, we will also see some aspects of deglobalization. We will see some deglobalization of supply chains, is what he just said. You mentioned global coordination a moment ago, and clearly as we progress, questions are going to be asked. How do we avoid a pandemic, a health crisis like this in future? What do you think the answer is going to be? Because it feels as though there's more of a breakdown in communication right now than anything. Well, 
Yes, I think we have become very much aware that uh, we need to build a more resilient uh, world. And uh, uh, the virus is just a um, call for action. You have also the big risks which we have alerted to in our risk report. Keep in mind, this is one month before the Freedom of Information Act uncovered the uh, Dr. Fauci emails saying that the uh, pandemic exclusively originated from the Wuhan lab. Both like uh, a cyber attack and of course the whole issue of global warming. So I hope uh, that uh, this uh, COVID crisis will uh, create sufficient um, drive for each government uh, to be more open for global cooperation. Because without the global cooperation, we cannot solve those issues which have a dimension which is transposable. The global cooperation, as written by the Great Reset of 2019, COVID-19. It's an actual fucking book, people. It's been in a circulation since 2014. Let me make that clear. The COVID-19 <laughs> Great Reset has been around in book form or their white papers since 2014. It's their actual playbook. They're telling you what they're getting ready to actually do. And this crazy motherfucker who looks like a James Bond villain is telling you that the best thing that we can do is that you will own nothing and you will like it. He is the person who is behind two-thirds of third-world countries starving to death. Over a two-year period of time, the accepted number of global starvation is 19 million people. Do you know what the number of third-world starvation is from 2020 to 2022 is? 48 million people. Extra. 67 million people have died over the past two years due to starvation because of restrainments and cutting off global supply, cutting off tribes, cutting off trade, cutting off all of this. And this is the person who will say, and based on CNBC's international TV, this only has 110,000 views. You will own nothing and you will like it. Just uh, stop at any uh, artificial line. I want to ask you specifically about China because it was back in 2017 that the world economy. Keep in mind. The lady who was actually interviewing him, yeah. Maria Parkinson, is a graduate of the Young Global Leaders Fucking Foundation. <laughs> that the Chinese President Xi Jinping asked himself as a protector of globalization. Very important moment because at the same time President Trump was on the megaphone talking about economic nationalism. That said, as we progress and we are 
questions about the origins of the virus. How do you think China has been damaged by this virus? See how she tied all that together in a neat little bow? Yeah. Trump's globalism of economy, trade, non-deficit, bring everything together, but the virus takes front page. Virus in terms of expanding the world community. What we see now is that China has been like out first, and of course, based on its uh, specific structure, governmental structure, it was uh, able to apply, let's say, more directive measures to get the virus under control. So what we see now is uh, China moving very fast out of the crisis, other countries lagging behind us. Why is he talking about China being the forerunner? on how to move out of the crisis if they didn't already know about the crisis. Why is that a top? I don't know. Let me continue here real quick. Got a couple more minutes left. And this will leave everybody that listens to you like, what the fuck is actually going on? The <laughs> <laughs> countries which have more emphasis on personal freedom uh, have more difficulties uh, to get control over the violence. So the risk which we have is that um, this uh, virus um, will even create more of global um, animosity, if I'm say so. We have to do everything, and uh, this virus will create more global animosity. So everything, okay? Let's let, let's just look at it this way: in dealing with global animosity, okay? I'm a white guy. You're a white guy. I shoot you. That's just a shooting. But if I shoot a black guy, that's animosity, right? Yes. Now, if I'm a natural Indian from your side of the border, and I come over here and I shoot a black guy, that has to be some sort of animosity, right? Yeah, you would think so, yes. You would think so. But if I'm an Asian American and I walk into a church and I shoot multiple people, kill multiple people, in the American press, that's not described as a hate crime. Do all of those things line up? No. Okay, so let's go a little step further. In Wisconsin, during Christmas, a black nationalist, a black supremacist, who had rap videos, all kinds of YouTube videos about killing all the white people you can, ran during the middle of a Christmas parade with his SUV, killing nine people and injuring another 13, but, but the media considers it a runaway SUV. Does that seem like equal treatment? No, it doesn't. 
And whenever the black schizophrenic who had published on Twitter and YouTube his diary of kill all the white people you can went on to the New York subway and let off a bomb and a gun killing everybody he can is that or is that not a hate crime? Yes it is. Well according to the American press he's just a disillusioned black man. Okay? That's where we are in the United States and I know it's not quite as severe in Canada. And this is a like crazy exposure for you. Uh, I'm bringing up things that you probably have never heard of, okay? Or at least heard these details of. But would you not say that at the end of the day, if that somebody on Facebook or Twitter came out and said, the only thing that we can do about the Buffalo shootings is we have to fix the white people. Would that not be... How would you consider that? Is that discriminatory? Is that racist? Is that... How, how would you look on that? Uh, it definitely has racial overtones, if not, if not outright racist itself. Okay, and if I was to follow up that statement with the shooters of 2021, and out of those shooters of 2021, yes, there were 12 white people, and out of those 12 white people, they carried AR-15s, but that does not include the 37 black people who shot up their own neighborhoods, but uh, 28 Mexicans who shot up their own neighborhoods, the 12 Muslims who shot up white and black neighborhoods. If you were to see a picturama of all these faces, and eight of them were only white, and 75 of them were other colors, what would you pull from that? Um, I'm going to send this to you, bro, okay? <laughs> <laughs> I have that. I have that picture board. I'm going to send it to you. I think that I would just be more concerned with the amount of people that, quite frankly, have access to that many guns. I don't know that I would look at the colors but I mean that's just me other people would probably look at the fact look at the colors and determine which color is the majority and then maybe form their opinion from there okay so if one color was a majority let's say brown or black okay why is it that the press continues to harbor and hype only the white versus black schizophrenics? Whenever you're dealing with mental illness, and that's what this is, whenever you're dealing with somebody who is such an extremist to such a point of view 
that your only form of attack outlet is against people of opposite colors to get attention. Wouldn't you say that's a schizophrenic? Or a sociopath? Or a psychotic? It's definitely in that family. Um. Okay. And whenever you're dealing with that many brown, black, or yellow people fighting amongst themselves, why is it that they're giving the leeway of social infrastructural failure? Now, that may not be something that you're familiar with in Canada, but have you heard of the area of California called Compton? Yes, I have. Okay. Have you heard of the area of Florida called Jacksonville? Yes. Okay. And whenever you're dealing with Missouri and Mississippi, obviously those are segregational states who heavily discriminate against blacks. You at least know that, right? Yes. So whenever you're dealing with the conversion of a six to one any color versus white in all of these territories why is the press disseminating this as black versus white I'll give you one answer but from a Canadian's point of view tell me what you think I think that uh, specifically I can't speak for the U.S., but I think specifically in Canada, I think a lot of the news media is afraid of the way that uh, they frame words or or form words um, because everything offends everybody now and everything is racist. You know, you could you could be like, and he went to the store, and someone's gonna find that racist. So I, I think that he versus they or them or Zizer or whatever. Exactly, right? and I think that well, that may not be the the primary um, uh, reason for the way that they speak. It is definitely one of the reasons. Okay, and, and that's a very fair conclusion. Whenever you're looking at it from the outside. Now, here's something that, that is very important to both my and your listeners in this kind of a conversation. Is this something you have to deal with in Ontario? You mean, uh, you mean like... Is racial profiling by news? The racial profiling usually takes, pl- takes uh, place by the, the police. Um, the news, like I said, they're afraid to, uh, they don't, they don't even use the word black. They don't use the word brown. It, they identify them by their race. So African American, um, Indian Canadian, uh, Pakistani Canadian, stuff like that. Wow. And require global cooperation to be addressed. 
concerned, are you, about the animosity between the US and China? Because as we wrapped up Davos, it felt as though we were making progress on the truth. But here we are now, a few months later, and it feels as though we've rewound even on that front. Yes, that's true, but um, I think it's not only a trade issue, it's, uh, as I mentioned, the whole repatriation of um, production capabilities. Repatriation of production capabilities. What the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck does that mean? I'm not sure. And whenever you're dealing with somebody, <coughs> sorry. It's all good. Whenever you're dealing with somebody who has this much
love has actually invaded over 100, I'm sorry, 1,000 district attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, state government at the Senate and House level. Over 1,000 campaigns have been funded by George Soros. And in the United States, what he has actually accomplished is no bail laws. In other words, a murderer in Chicago can be let loose in 24 hours with no bail. You're kidding Someone me. Someone who shot somebody on their street on camera. That's Chicago. Milwaukee, Madison, Wisconsin, Minneapolis, Wyoming. This is in all 50 fucking states. California, there's 24 districts he has funded. District attorneys and prosecuting attorneys campaigns to make sure they are elected sheerly because of the money. Wow, I did not know that. And this is happening in Canada as well. He also backs and funds Trudeau. Well, I can't say that I'm surprised about that. And and this is all public information. You can look it all up. And I, I don't want to go through all of the details on this. But what I do want to do, since we're doing a simulcast... <laughs> <laughs> And and somehow or another, over the past hour and a half, the politics uh, part of all of this has really taken over. But at, at the same time, whenever you're dealing with somebody like Trudeau and his second in command, the lady who, uh, fuck, what's her name? Freeland. Yes, Freeland. Uh, her father was a Nazi. I'm sorry, her grandfather was a Nazi. He was the second in command in propaganda for Poland, which is actually otherwise known as the Ministry of Truth. Wow. I gotta say, uh, this has been, uh, it's been a fucking history lesson. I mean, I knew a lot of this stuff, but when you put it together with the stuff that I didn't know, it kind of fits like a like a fucking giant puzzle. Yeah, it is. It's a really ugly puzzle, right? Yeah. And and here's here's one thing that before we leave off, uh, I'm gonna say this. Um, have you heard of President Eisenhower from the United States? You know who that is. I've heard the name. I wouldn't be able to okay. tell you. I wouldn't be able to tell you when he was the president, but I've heard the name. Okay, he was the president right before JFK was shot. Okay. Okay. Have you heard of? You know about that, right? Yeah, no, I know. I I know about JFK getting shot. Okay. All right. So, um, there's many conspiracies about that. It is what it is. Um, but uh, let me play one thing for you at closing of this entire conversation, okay? Okay. 
So. Go ahead and edit out this part right here where I'm singing to myself. It is what it is. Here we go. On the way out of office, Dwight D. Eisenhower, he said two specific things. The first thing that he said was, any politician who enters into politics and as a politician leave politics richer than they started, you are dealing with a crook that is not a public servant. A public servant is able to show every dollar they earned and every dollar that went out. Did you know that Dwight D. Eisenhower retired whenever he was got done with his second term as president of the United States? Retired broke? No, I did not know that. It's funny how national politics don't actually show the truth of what's going on, right? So here's Eisenhower's speech out of office after two terms leading into JFK. This is the complete flip of the Dixie Democrats turning into Republicans and Republicans turning into Democrats. The only divisioning line was whether or not you were pro-life because that surgery was just becoming a real thing, whether or not you supported funding the military, depending on whether or not you did or did not have children in the military, and coming into office, JFK promised that we would go to the moon. Okay? Okay. So let's hear this real quick. In the councils of government, in the card against the acquisition of whether sought or unsought, the industrial complex. And of how more money spent on the military, every gun that is meant. Every rocket fired signifies, in the final sense, a theft from those who hunger and are not fed. Those who are cold are not booked. This world in arms is not spending money alone. It is spending the sweat of its laborers, the genius of its scientists, the hopes of its children. The cost of one modern heavy bomber is this, a modern brick school in more than 30 cities. It is two electric power plants, each serving a town of 60,000 population. It is. Two fine, fully equipped hospitals. It is some 50 miles of concrete. We pay for a single fighter plane with a half million bushels of wheat. We pay for a single destroyer with new homes that could have housed more than 8,000 people. Congress will soon be spending 700 million. We cannot keep giving more money to the 
children in our country are food insecure. When a hundred and forty million Americans cannot afford the basic necessities of life without going into debt. Join the movement. All right. So, real quick, in closing, we can close out with whatever you want. And during this part of the simulcast, we can flip back over to your interview. Okay. Sure. Um, I just had uh, a couple of uh, points I wanted to uh, uh, touch on. First of all, are you familiar with? Um, Rob Ford, he's the former, uh, unfortunately, the, the former crack-smoking mayor of Toronto. Yes. Yeah, he's just, uh, we had the exact same version in Washington, D.C. You must be talking about Marion Barry. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Rob Ford was a city councillor. He, uh, he actually was the city councillor for the ward I currently live in. So And then he ran for mayor. But, uh, yeah, I just wanted to know because a lot of... Um, I, I ask that to a lot of Americans. Any, anytime I'm interviewing someone from the U.S. And they're like, no, I, I don't really know who that is. So it's, it's nice to know if someone knows. And the other thing I wanted to ask you. Um, during the 2016 election when Clinton and Trump were... Um, going at each other. There was a radio station that was paying their listeners a thousand bucks a shot if they could get in front of a live news camera and yell, Bill Clinton is a rapist. Did you hear about this? Yes. And they would get an extra, I think it was $500 if they were wearing the shirt at the same time that says Bill Clinton is a rapist. And then at the end of it, they were under, underfunded by $12,000. That part I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they got a lot of people to jump in front of the camera and make fools of themselves, and then they couldn't pay them. I think it was funny that they made that whole election about someone who wasn't even running. Like they, well, so here's the thing. Uh, whenever you're dealing with the 2000s, okay. So uh, we'll just take this time by timeline here. We got about 25 minutes left here in this last hour, okay. All right. All right. So whenever you're dealing with George W. Bush, all right. The best thing we could possibly do to recollect and reinvigorate the American government and North American government, you guys were included in some of this, is go to war. One of the best things we could possibly do for the economy is what's called wartime economy. That's how we came up with the supersonic jets. That's how we came up with the blue bombers. All of this other shit, okay? We invested billions and came out of it looking like technological leaders, right? Okay. Okay. What George W. did was, or what he allowed to happen, 
And um, Donald, have you heard the name Donald Rumsfeld? Sounds familiar. Okay. So on September 2010, he came on NBC News with Dan Rather and admitted that the Pentagon was missing $2.3 trillion. Now, that's a big amount of money in 2003. It's a big amount of money now, but in 2003, whenever you're dealing with the wartime and budget deficit of being only $40 billion and the approved budget passed by Congress in the United States of being $32 billion, a missing $2.3 trillion is a huge amount of money, right? Yep. The next day, now keep in mind, I said this is 2010, September 10th. The next day, we had 9-11. You mean... And that kept a very patriotic movement going on for about two years. The New York Times, the Washington Post, the LA Times, Time Magazine, I don't know what major contributors there were in Canada at that point in time who also backed us up. There was a lot of them. I do know that. Yes. I don't know the names of the publications like I do the American Press. I'm sorry. Uh, but... You're dealing with thousands of articles, hundreds of thousands of words that said we had to hunt down the weapons of mass destruction. We got into a war with Iraq, with Afghanistan, with Kuwait. And then come to find out 10 years later, the weapons of mass destruction never existed. was never actually true, okay? Okay. Donald Brinsfeld, whenever he announced that $2.3 trillion, whenever the national budget budget wasn't even at $100 billion at that point, okay? $2.3 trillion was missing just from the Pentagon. A day later, we had a worldwide national terroristic attack that led us into 20 years of war. We went to war with Afghanistan, Iraq, the SEU, Syria, Somalia. We actually, by the time it became Obama as president, with Yemen and Syria and Somalia, the United States of America ran out of bombs. Really? You can look that up. Go to DuckDuckGo and look it up. United States ran out of bombs. Happened while Obama was in office. I did not know that. I'll give you a minute. Look it up. <laughs> and 
And then fast forward another 15 years and the most dangerous four words in the American lexicon, I don't know what it is in Canada right now, but the four most dangerous words in the American lexicon as considered by the Washington Post and the New York Post over the past 18 months is do your own research. They have deemed it the four most dangerous words. That's the reason we have a new head of the Ministry of Truth. We have a new office completely fabricated out of fucking thin air. Have you heard about this? Not exactly, no. Uh, Jenna, Jenna, uh, Jenna, uh, Jenna, Jenna Kakowicz, sorry. She is, I'll send you some videos on YouTube and, and, uh, Twitter. And you can look at it however you want to. Okay. Have you ever heard of the Mary Poppins musical where they're like, XP Alidocious, blah, 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 blah. They name off all that shit, right? Yeah. Okay. She does an entire video on right-wing misinformation. It's on Twitter. Right now. Jenna Jekyll is her name. Okay. She is the head of the new Ministry of Truth. There is every effort to keep down the truth. There is every effort to anybody who speaks out the truth. In the past six months, I have been banned from Twitter 11 times. I've been banned from Facebook nine times. Fact check 36 times. I have been banned from Instagram eight times and fact check 42 times. I've been taken down off of LinkedIn 53 fucking times. Wow. Just by reposting actual White House correspondence information. Wow. I didn't realize that was a thing. Like, I didn't realize that was possible. Oh, no. It's a real fucking thing. I've been just... <laughs> and, and whatever, you know, whatever you, you deal with media giants, you know, and right now I'm so lucky... And, um, uh, I'm both so lucky and also, uh, uh, well blessed by being included in the Alex Jones Information Wars Network. I'm part of the band.video.com network, uh, where I'm able to post things because if I post it on Facebook, I'll be banned. Right. I'll be taken down. And the only way to um, disseminate this information is to put it out to people who are like-minded. Now, here's my problem. Whenever you scream into an echo chamber, the great thing is the echo chamber screams it back. Okay? Yeah. We all know that. That's a cool thing about the echo. You have to hear your voice. It comes back seven, eight, nine, ten times. Blah, blah, blah. It's cool. That's what makes echoes cool, right? 
Yes. Yeah, you know, and 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 in social media, whenever you engage in that, and there's too much of an echo chamber, you get taken down, you get banned, you get marketed against. Right. Which has happened against me many times over the past year. I told everybody a year ago that the shot we're going to end up causing damage. And now look at all these reports worldwide. There's tuberculosis, there's damage to the liver, there's inflamed heart programs going on, and then whenever you're dealing with the actual shot advocacy, then Pfizer puts out the report with 1,291 adverse effects and they knew it during the trials. They didn't even actually do double-blind trials. They just gave it to everybody and seen what happened. And then you have a press conference at the press corps where Obama gets up on stage and says, we've done a two-billion-person study group, and we have found that it has to be good. But then we're getting ready to actually talk about what the newest strain is. This is three weeks before Omicron broke, by the way. This is not the press conference where uh, uh, Noah, what's his name, came out and fucking said, you know, that the, the only people with the lowest uh, approval rating is sitting here in the audience, not Biden. That's funny. Uh, it, it actually is kind of funny if it was a Saturday Night Live skit, but it's not funny considering it's real fucking life. That's you true. know? It's like a double-edged sword. And I don't know what you guys are dealing with there in Canada. Is there anything similar to that? Like Saturday Night Live where they're exposing actual press briefings or... Noah Wilde talking about what's actually happening in the White House. Is there anything like that going on in Canada? Like, what's your own version of that? Um, we don't have one. Um, I will say that it, it, it happened quite a while ago. They actually stopped reporting numbers. Ooh. They just stopped. Now they only report... Um, They'll report some hospital numbers, and they'll report deaths every now and again. But we used to get a, a, a daily case count with the deaths yeah, the and the percentage yeah. every day. We don't get that anymore. We haven't gotten that for, God, it's been at least seven or eight months, if, if I'm not... I think I'm correct. Maybe longer, I'm not sure, but it's been... Quite a while, because they just stopped for some reason. Right? Isn't that interesting? So here's what I think, and, and here's what I predict, okay? And we'll leave it off at this, and leave your counterpoint on what you have been told or what you think about this. So we're getting ready to deal into a huge tourism part of the season for all of our countries for the United States and Canada both. The best thing that can happen economy-wise is for the next three months just let everybody do what they want to do 
But going into the actual elections, now this is happening right now for you guys. So this might be a little bit different, but it's very similar in Australia and New Zealand and England and Italy and Germany and Switzerland and Sweden. All these countries that are clamoring for uh, UN help. The next three months, I think, we're going to be dealing with a relaxation of all of the um, being uh, being inhabited uh, towards or not inhabited. That means you actually live there. That's the wrong word. Um, But whenever you're dealing with people who are actually dealing with the disease, Okay, over the next three months, it's going to be just let loose. And then whenever you go into the American and European election cycles, everything is going to constrict in such a horrible way that is way worse than what we dealt with a year ago. You think it was bad enough not to be able to work if you're in the service industry? If you're a bartender or a waiter or a waitress? You think it was bad enough not to be able to work, working at a grocery store, unless you worked early morning hours or late evening stock hours? Or you think it was horrible for local grocery marts to be closed down while Walmart and Target and Myers remained open? I think what you're about to see three months from now at the end of summer, once swim season is over, and we're going into the election season of the United States, which coincides with the UN electoral process and the WHO funding process, I think we're about ready to deal with something incredibly horrible. That's just me. But for the past year, everything that I've talked about on my show, <laughs> everything I have talked about on my show, I have been able to predict within a two or three month span. The second shot wouldn't work. There'd be a new strain. They would predict we're all going to die in the winter if we didn't get the shot. That wouldn't fucking work. The second shot, all of the shit, I have predicted it. Wow. And all of it has actually fucking happened. Okay? Uh, you want to know why? Why? Because I have actually read Klaus Schwab's Great Reset COVID 2019. It's a playbook, motherfuckers. If you like soccer or you like football or Canadian football, or baseball, and you had the play-by-play-by-play book of what the fucking in, uh, the opposing team was going to do, and you didn't follow it, would you not be a fucking idiot? Everything I have talked about for the past year has come true based on the fact of what I have read and what I have watched from the Klaus Schwab, the WEF, Bill and Melinda Gates Foundations, funding of who and all of their other subsidiaries 
everything I have seen and watched and read, it's all come true. And I've predicted it time after fucking time after fucking time. Wow. Um, well, I mean, selfishly, I hope that you're wrong, but I understand that the track record you have, so I wouldn't be surprised if you are right. And uh, I think that's a... The reason, a, the reason I'm right is because is why I'm on the Alex Jones or InfoWars or Band.Video.com or USIndependence.com networks. It, it's not because I'm wrong. Because I keep predicting it. Because I've read this shit. I think that's a great way to uh, to leave off for tonight. Um, thank you again so much for for coming on and really giving not only me but the listeners a, a friggin' history lesson. Like I said before, that was like some stuff I knew and then some I didn't know, and you put it together. And like you said, it's a giant, ugly puzzle. <laughs> very. Yeah, very ugly puzzle. And, you know, it, and, and one of the things that everybody who's a regular listener of, my, listener of my show is I put out two or three episodes a week, or the, the one show that I do put out, just one episode, or, you know, whatever. I'm not... I'm going to hide the fact that I drink the entire time. So the first minute versus the last 30 minutes is going to be entirely, <laughs> entirely different. And I'm okay with that. I don't give a fuck. I'm not on here for some, like, recovery kick or anything like that. I've gone through all this bullshit on Christmas and uh, I really don't have an axe to grind with anybody. Um... The biggest thing that I have an axe to grind with on a philosophical level is that nobody controls you. Nobody can, can control me. And, uh, you know, that's something that I hope that filters out through everybody else and that uh, they actually kind of dig. If not, you know, so be it. I am worried about it, but uh, at the same time, you know, I mean, uh, there's a lot of things that go into it whenever I'm doing all the research that I do and bringing facts to people the way that I do. I'm not bringing this forward just to hear myself talk. Um, you know, it is what it is, but I'd like to kind of close out with a really kick-ass song, if you don't mind. Yeah, of course. All right. Not that one. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you.
Um, I just want to, again, thank you for coming on. This has been amazing, and uh, I look forward to maybe doing it again uh, in the future. Thank you again so much for coming on. Uh, guys, that's a wrap.